Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Have you ever been deceived? Do you recall what it felt like to discover the truth? Well, the church at Thyatira, the subject of our, our study this morning, they're about to find out the truth about one of their leaders, and it's going to be horrifying. And, you know, when that happens in a a personal relationship, it can be heartbreaking. You know, a family member or a a friend or a work relationship, it can be heartbreaking. But, you know, when it happens in your church, it can be faith-destroying. And so as we see Jesus deal with deception in Thyatira and encourage the faithful to keep moving forward, you know, it may encourage us to finish our race no matter what obstacles the enemy may put in our way to not opt out of our call, the Great Commission, and to be a part of the body of Christ, but to finish our race. So chapter 2, I'm going to begin in verse 18. And under the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these things says the Son of God who has his eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like fine brass. I know your works and charity and service and faith and your patience and your works and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against you, because you suffer that woman Jezebel, which calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Now, Jesus, you know, when he gave John the outline for the book of Revelation, he said, John, write the things that you have already seen, the vision of Christ in chapter 1. We've already covered that. Write the things, the second section, write the things that are now going on, the things of the church, these seven messages to these seven churches. And then after that, he says, write down what comes after these things, after the things of the church. And we'll get to that when we start chapter 4. And in this middle chunk, this middle section of Revelation that we're in right now, the things that are now going on, the things of the church, these seven messages or seven letters as they're known, um, they, they have a format. You know, Jesus will start the letter by uh, reminding the church of, of one of his character traits or something about him. Um, and then he will, co- if, if there's anything commendable, he will commend them for what they're doing right. Um, and then if there's anything that needs to be corrected, he'll correct them for what they're not doing right, what needs to be fixed. And then he'll close with a, a promise for them if they'll get right, if they will, you know, follow him to the end. And so the format's the same here. We start off with this reminder of Jesus' character. He says, unto the angel of the church at Thyatira, write, these things says the Son of God, who has his eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like fine brass. Now, the city of Thyatira, if we could put the map up there real quick and can look at it. The city of Thyatira was about 40 miles southeast of Pergamum. I promise you we have a map. There we go. And I know it's up there. There we go. That's uh, Thyatira right there. So it's much further inland uh, than the other places that we've covered who have all been on the coast. And we're working our way around. That's how the Lord does it. Um, But Thyatira was never a magnificent city, uh, yet it was the center of a a number of trade guilds that had used the natural resources around the city to make it very prosperous. Um, Apollo, the sun god, was their chief deity, but there was no temple dedicated to emperor worship in Thyatira. And so it's not surprising that we have no historical record of any persecution coming to Thyatira because that's, that's what was going on, why these other churches were really going through it right now, because of the emperor worship that they were forced to say, 
you know, Aquarius Kaiser, Caesar is Lord. Um, and, of course, Christians could not say that because Jesus is Lord. Now, since those who lived in Thyatira were all wealthy merchants, um, the Christians likely lived uh, in Thyatira, likely lived in pro- both prosperity and peace without too much uh, persecution. So it's interesting that in light of their much better situation, the Lord says, these things says the Son of God. Um, Jesus usually referred to himself as the Son of Man. The Son of God is his uh, title as the second person of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And that title, when Jesus does use it, conveys his power and his authority. Like, for example, he said hereafter when the, you know, they said, you know, are you the son, you know, tell us if you're the son, the son of God, tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he said, yes, I am on his trial. And he said, you're, hereafter you're going to see me seated at the right hand of the Father, the place of authority, the place of power. And so when Jesus uses that phrase, it speaks of that. The eyes blazing fire and the shining brass feet we already covered in chapter 1 speaks of Jesus' anger at sin and his preparation to tread out the winepress of rebels in the day of judgment uh, that he's preparing to do in the, the great tribulation. So Jesus is reminding them of his omnipotence, of his rightful authority. Um, uh, but that has always been something directed towards the unbelievers, as we've, we've already covered. So why is he reminding a church that's not experiencing persecution at the hands of unbelievers? Well, I think it's because many in this congregation had become like the world that Jesus is preparing to judge. And, you know, that's a stark contrast to the other churches who had lost so much but had never compromised, you know, that they had continued to endure with the Lord. You know, I, I think... 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 is always a good exhortation for Christians who live in prosperity and peace. And 1 John 2, 15, it says, love not the world, neither the things of the world. You know, for all that's in the world is not of the Father, right? In 1 John chapter 2, 15, just a few pages to the left of where we are right now. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world. And then it tells us what that is. The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It's not of the Father. It doesn't come from Him. It comes from the world. And that world and all its lust, all those things, it's dying. It's passing away. But he that does the will of God abides forever. You know, we here in the West, we live in lots of prosperity and for the most part, a lot of peace compared to our brothers and sisters all throughout the the globe. Um, You know, so we need to remind ourselves not to love the world or the things of the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, the pride of life but to love doing the will of the Father, of aligning our lives and our hearts with Him. You know, and so before we move forward in Jesus, you know, commending and then correcting this church because they had become very worldly, um, you know, what have you set your heart on in the peace and prosperity we have here? What do you love the most? Is it doing the will of God and pleasing Him? Well, Jesus, in verse 19, he begins his commendation by saying, I know your works. That's what Jesus has said to all the churches so far. I know your works. So there are good things here. Um, You know, Pliny, the historian, he listed Thyatira as one of the most unimportant cities in the region, but Jesus did not see the church there that way. He saw all the awesome things that they did, even if no one else in the region knew. Saw everything they did, and he commends them for it. I know your works and your charity. Uh, King James says charity, but it's just the word agape. It's just your love. 
You know, the people in this church, they were deeply devoted to each other. It was the exact opposite of Ephesus where there was no love. This was a church that was deeply devoted to one another. They were loyal. They sincerely cared about one another. It's a loving church. He says, I also know your service. The word here means to render assistance, and it usually refers to menial or humble tasks. The, the guys in these church, they had no problem doing the dirty work to help somebody out, to help a brother out. They were happy to serve, even if it meant, you know, a, a humble task. He says, I also know your faith, and here it means faithfulness, your dependability. You could count on these folks. They were not flakes, you know. He says, I also know your endurance. Uh, so here we see, or your patience, which means endurance. So the church had gone through some difficulties, uh, some persecution in a sense, or you know, some sense of, of not being accepted, and, and they had endured through that. They had continued walking with the Lord despite that. And then Jesus says something interesting, and your works, and the last to be more than the first. So what is Jesus saying here? Because the word for works here is the same exact word in both occasions. Why does he start off with works, and then why does he end with works and say the last works are better than the, you know, greater than the first, or more than the first? Well, the idea here is that, you know, he has known everything that's gone on in this church from its beginning up to this point. And he says, you know, you were, from the beginning, you've been a loving, faithful, humble, you know, dependable, enduring, hardworking, you know, church. And you've grown in that, you know? You've, you've, you've grown in that. You're continuing to move forward in these things. So this wasn't just an, uh, an active, loving church. They were moving in the right direction in all these areas. They were a maturing and growing church in all of these areas. And you know, that, that provides a challenge to us this morning. Jesus had nothing good to say about two churches we're gonna cover, not today, but later on, sometime in 2026. So Jesus isn't just making up some things to be nice. Well, I got to say something nice about this church, you know. These were real strengths for the congregation in Thyatira. You know, that Jesus took time to mention these good qualities means these things should be in a church, should be in our church. That it pleases the Lord when they are in a church. And that a church should be growing in these areas, not being content with what they already do. You know, I'm so encouraged as, as a as a pastor and a Christian who attends Calvary Chapel Orlando because I see so many of these attributes in our church. But, you know, I know the Lord wants us to keep going forward in that area, in these areas, right? So let's be more dependable with one another. Let's be glad to do the dirty work to help a brother or sister out. You know, let's be even more loyal to one another, being more forgiving and sincerely interested in one another's lives. Let's continue to grow in those strengths. Now, being that Thyatira was such an active, loving church, it covered up its very serious problems. Because when you would walk in, you would feel the love immediately. You would be blown away by people's servants' hearts, and it, that would catch your attention to such a degree that you didn't see what was going on, the real problems that were there. The, this church had solid people, but the congregation also had some serious weak spots. And so in verse 20, Jesus begins to correct it. He says, notwithstanding, and it's that same word that he used with Ephesus, the same word he used with Pergamos. You got all this good stuff going on, but I love your devotion, you know, Thyatira. I love your humility. I love your service to one another, but I am completely opposed to a few things. I have a few things against you, and here it is, because you suffer that woman, Jezebel, which calls herself a prophetess. 
You, the word suffer there means to allow someone to do something. You allow this woman, Jezebel, to teach and to seduce my servants. Now, I mentioned early on that that phrase, that woman, most literally means you allow your wife to do this. And again, remember this is being written to the Angelos, the messenger to the church at Thyatira. So some people have speculated this is the lead pastor there. And, and so, you know, if it says your wife, this is the pastor's wife who's doing these things, you know, that you allow your wife, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. Now, the reason that translators didn't translate it, your wife, is because they were horrified by the idea of the pastor's wife doing these things and nobody knew about it, that, or they allowed it to go on. And so they didn't think that that could be the answer, so they translated it this way. But that's what it it means. Now, can I say this? If you sense a call from God to pour a good chunk of time and energy into serving at a church, then please make sure the person you're considering marriage with matches your enthusiasm. Please make sure you're on the same page doctrinally. You know, one of the things we do with our premarital counseling with couples is we, we have conversations about those things. Have you talked about doctrine? You know, where do you guys align on that? Do you have the same heart? You know, where are you at on your future? What you want to do serving the Lord? What you want to do with a family? Because if you're not on the same page with that, particularly when it concerns ministry, that can create major issues. So make sure you're on the same page, you know, doctrinally if you're considering marrying someone. Make sure that their vision for ministry is something that matches yours. And last but not least, make sure their name is not Jezebel. All right? That is not a good name. Like that is like if you have your eHarmony profile, if, you know, if name is Jezebel, do not contact. Right? Why? What's so bad about Jezebel? Jezebel, of course, is, is a name from the Old Testament. She was the Old Testament queen of Israel, but she wasn't an Israelite. She was married to King Ahab, not a good dude. And, and King Ahab had married her for political reasons. She was the daughter of the king of the Phoenicians, the king of Tyre and Sidon. And, and so when she married Ahab, she brought all of her priests of Baal. She was, many people think she was one of the priestesses of, of the temple of Baal there in, in Tyre. And so she brought these, these priests of Baal into Israel, and it led the northern kingdom into Baal worship. Now, some people have speculated, well, her real name wasn't Jezebel. Jesus is just calling her that because she was so much like the Old Testament Jezebel. And, and is that possible that Jesus did that? It's possible. Uh, but there is no reason in the text to think this is not her real name. Jesus has used real names for other individuals uh, like Antipas, the martyr who died. Uh, you know, Balaam has already been used. I mean, he's used real names so far, so there's no reason to think all of a sudden he would spiritualize her name. But it, it could be possible. But the key point that Jesus brings up about her is he says, which calls herself a prophetess. In other words, I didn't tell her to say anything. I never called her to speak. I never called her to teach these things. She is self-appointed. She did it even though I didn't tell her to. Now, what was she saying? What was she doing as a prophetess? Well, says that she taught and seduced Jesus' servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. To teach means you could be ignorant, but the word seduce here makes it clear that she was not ignorant. The word seduce means to 
pull someone off the right path, to cause them to take a wrong view, and therefore to stray from the right path. So this is more than just someone who is ignorant or mistaken. That happens sometimes, you know. Um, I'm glad none of my first sermons are published because they're horrible. And some of them have things in them that aren't even biblical. And I cringe even sometimes when I listen to sermons that are only 10 to 12 years old because some of those aren't very good either. So it, it's not that people in leadership or Bible teachers don't make mistakes. This is more, though, than just someone who's ignorant or mistaken. This woman is a self-appointed spokesperson for God with an evil personal agenda, one who has taken advantage of her position to pray on those who simply want to serve the Lord. She is teaching and seducing Jesus' servants. And if you lead a, a ministry here at Calvary Chapel Orlando, or at, at, if you're watching or here and you have another church here that is your home church, if you lead a ministry there, it is so important to never forget that those you lead are not your servants. They don't belong to you. They are Jesus' servants. And they are trusting you to lead them to Jesus, not to yourself. And this is why everything a leader does must be tested against Scripture. You know, Paul praised the Bereans because he said they had better blood than the, than the Thessalonians. That's what noble means. They were more noble than those of Thessalonica. They had better blood, man. There's just, they had a better, something better in their, their spiritual DNA because when he came in, they said, okay, well, we'll listen to you, Paul, but we're going to measure everything you do against the Word of God. And Paul was like, right on, I like these guys. That's how it should be, you know? I'm grateful when people come to me and say, hey, you said this this morning, Pastor Will, and I don't know about it. Can you go in deeper into the Word? I love that. It means they're, they're not just, you know, listening and doing whatever I say. They're, they're following Jesus. Honest leaders, again, they still make mistakes or sin, but honest leaders are working toward the goal of knowing Jesus better themselves and helping you to do the same. False teachers, they are self-oriented. Their desire is for you to somehow give something to them, you know, for, for you to somehow be drawn, you know, more to love them or more loyal to them or to do something for them. Peter talks about it in, in 2 Peter, just a few pages to the left here. In chapter 1 of 2 Peter, he, he talks about how God moved these holy men you know, who, who loved him, and he, he moved them to speak his word. And they gave us the scriptures faithfully, you know, as the Holy Spirit led them. In contrast to that, though, chapter 2 of 2 Peter, he says, there were also at the same time that these godly men were given the truth, there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you who shall privately bring in, secretly bring in. They have an agenda. They will secretly bring in damnable heresies, destructive teachings, false teachings, even denying the Lord that brought them and bring swift, uh, upon themselves swift destruction. But here's the kicker. And many shall follow their pernicious or deceptive ways. And because they'll follow these deceptive teachings, the way of truth will be evil spoken of. People will say evil things about Christianity. And through covetousness, because of their greed, because of their selfishness, shall they with feigned words, deceptive words, make merchandise of you. It means they'll exploit you. They'll use you for their own purposes and plans. Listen, don't let any leader ever exploit you. 
You belong to Jesus. He purchased you with his blood. No man or woman did that. Don't let any leader exploit you. Godly leaders do not swindle those they minister to. They serve those they minister to. Now, we talked last week about how wrong teaching always eventually leads to wrong behavior. And and that's what false teachers do. They often use their teaching to lead you into their sins. And so she was teaching and seducing the Lord's servants, genuine believers, to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols, to commit sexual immorality and to eat food that had been dedicated to other gods. We saw these same problems in Pergamos last week, so I won't go into detail on what that was. Um, But this situation is a a bit different. And, And we see that in verse 21. Jesus says, and this was the situation, this, this is the situation, and then Jesus gives some insight. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. He says, I gave her time, that's what her space means, I gave her a, a, a section of time to repent, to turn it around. Turn what around? Not just her teaching, but her sexually immoral behavior. You see, here's the difference between what was going on in Pergamos and what was going on in Thyatira. She wasn't teaching these heresies so that Christians would go out into the world and do these things. She was telling Christians to do them with her. Now, if the image of a pastor's wife doing this disgusts you, it should. But is it any wonder that it still happens in the church today when it happened so early in its history? It does. You know, Satan devises new schemes, but the results are always the same. The, the false leader, the false teacher, the heretic, they, they're involved in selfishness. They want to exploit God's people. They are the exact opposite of serving. Now, when we see a horror like this, like this monstrous situation in Thyatira come to light in our own day and age, The temptation, of course, is to put on our sin sniffers and to critique everything that leadership does, right? We're not going to get burned again. But the problem with that reaction is is twofold. Number one, Jesus gave her time to repent. He gave her time to repent. So if our captain was gracious to the most heinous heretic, then we can still hold our leaders to a standard but be gracious, you know? We never compromise on standards, but we can be gracious, you know? I, I'm always amazed. There was a, a guy who taught at my Bible college and a uh, very well-known teacher, very solid teacher. And uh, his testimony was one where he had, as a senior pastor, had had an inappropriate counseling session. Now, he had, he had not had an affair. None of these things happened, but was, there was an inappropriate thing that happened in the counseling session. He went and as soon as it happened, he went and confessed it to his wife. He confessed it to the church board. They immediately fired him and kicked him out of the church. And that's probably not the right answer. <laughs> this is a genuine guy who, who blew it and needed help and, and wanted, you know, accountability, wanted to never do these things again. His marriage is amazing. Him and his wife to this day, they still do. They actually have a marriage, uh, a ministry to married couples uh, because of how God brought them through this and how God strengthened their marriage through his sin. Um, Conversely, though, I've also seen the opposite, where you've got a guy who's been caught in multiple affairs. He didn't confess. He was caught, and then they tolerate him still in the pulpit. So, you know, 
I realize that these are not always easy situations to address, but we can hold leaders to a standard and still be gracious. We can do that. So, so if our, our captain can do that, we can do that as well. But then the other problem with, with being overly critical and overly, you know, you know just judgmental and how we're going to deal with the, even the smallest of, of failures of a leader is when Matthew, Jesus told the story of the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30. He said, you know, the, the, the sower went out into a field, and master went out into a field and sowed wheat in the field, good seed. And, and at this, you know, that night, though, the enemy came and he sowed tares, you know, bad seed out in, the, out in the field. And so when they woke up in the morning, poof, there was a whole field of wheat there with tares all grown up in the midst. And so the servants went out to the harvest and they said, Master, there's tares growing up amongst the wheat. What do we do? Do you want us to go out and rip out the tares? And the master said, no, don't rip out the tares because it, in doing so, you'll probably rip out some of the wheat as well. Leave that for my servants, the angels, to do in, in the last days. Now, what's, what's the meaning of that? What's the, the purpose of that? Well, first off, I want to explain. Jesus did give us instructions on how to handle a believer who refuses to repent, right? Like we have clear instructions. So if they, you have a believer who sins against you or, or is living in sin, they refuse to repent, you go to them on one-on-one, on one, right? Privately, you go to them. And, uh, and, and, and you talk to them, and you, you challenge them to repent. You love them. You let them know your heart's toward them. I'm here to help. You know, how can I help you turn this around? Now, if they refuse to listen to you, if they refuse to repent, then you go and find another brother or sister and then confront them two-on-one, and you, you deal with it again. Then if they refuse to repent, then you bring it before the church. And then if they refuse to repent, you excommunicate them. There is a biblical process to deal with uh, someone who is unrepentant in clear, obvious sin. But that deals with behavior. Only our Lord knows if they're a wheat or a tear. So our job is to deal with actual behavior, never guess motives. And far too often, you know, I have people approach me and say, Pastor Will, you know, I've talked to this person. I know, you know, that they just, they are, they are evil and they have a heart for this, this, and this, and this. And I'm like, time out, put the brakes on. We deal with behavior. We don't deal with hearts. The Lord alone knows a heart. So if there is behavior that's continuing on that's wrong, that they're not responding rightly to, then we can talk about this. But otherwise, it's not our job to assume the worst or to guess motives. In fact, the Bible says that love believes the best. It doesn't assume the worst. So certainly, you know, we want to deal with wrong things in the church biblically, um, sin in the church biblically, especially sin in leadership, very biblically. But we leave this part to Jesus, the verse 22 and 23 part, which we'll get to in a moment. Now, I do want to point out before we get to that, while Jesus had a big problem with her teaching and with her behavior, his greatest accusation is right here at the end of verse 21. I gave her opportunity to repent, space, time to repent, but she would not repent. Would not repent. His greatest accusation is her refusal to respond to his grace. Listen, when you and I are in sin, God gives us time to repent. But that time isn't unlimited. It's not. You know, the Lord said way back in Genesis 6, verse 3, that my spirit will not always strive with man. I'm not going to fight with you forever. And so you and I must take advantage of that time. She didn't. And so he judged her. Verse 22. Behold, I will cast her into a bed. That's his judgment. I will cast her into a bed. And then that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. 
and I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searches the reins and hearts, and that I give unto every one of you according to your works. And we start with her judgment. He says, I will cast her into a bed. It's a, that's a Greek idiom that means to cause someone to become very ill. Her judgment will be a physical illness of some sort, uh, a very serious physical illness. Now, does God do that sometimes? Does he judge someone's sin or dis- discipline a, a believer through illness? Yes, he does do that sometimes. Um, but I think I find that, that usually churches or, or pastors or Christians, they, they tend to go to one or two extremes. So they'll go to the extreme of any, like Job's, Job's comforters, right? You know, you're Job. You have done nothing wrong, and, and, but the Lord has allowed the enemy to, to get at you. And even though you've done nothing wrong, your life stinks right now. You have lost so much. You're in physical pain, emotional pain. Life is hard. And Job gets word, hey, your three friends are going to come visit you. And oh, that would be so nice, be so comforting. You know, good to see you guys. You know, what brought you to see me? Well, Job, we need to talk to you because we know why you're in this mess. You do? Praise the Lord. What is it? What's going on? Job, you've got secret sin in your life. What? I don't have any secret sin in my life. No, we know. We know. One of them said, an angel walked by me and the hair stood up on my arms. I know. No, you're evil, Job. It's time to repent. That's why you're sick. And Job, of course, he's not happy with him. Thanks for nothing. Wish you'd never come to see me. Miserable comforters are you all, he said. And we don't want to be that. We can't assume every time someone gets sick, oh, what's going on in their life? But the other view is, well, God would never do something like that. You know, God loves everybody. and He's not angry at sin and he, he never disciplines us. Or, whoa, 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 whoa. We have quite a few examples of unbelievers being judged physically and also believers being disciplined by the Lord through physical illness. So that is a possibility, you know, we don't want to be like the disciples who remember in John chapter 9, verses 3 and 4, when, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're going in, they go and they worship the Lord in the temple, and it's wonderful, you know, and then they come walking down the southern steps, and they see this guy who's there uh, every day begging because he was born blind. And, and you know, the disciples, they, well, we're going to impress our, our rabbi. He said, hey, uh, Jesus, we have a question, you know, uh, this guy over here, uh, you know, who sinned, him or his parents, that he was born this way? How do you sin in your mother's womb? Not only is it an ignorant question, it's such an insensitive question. He's not deaf, he's blind. I love Jesus' answer. No one, you knuckleheads. Maybe that's a loose translation. It's my carnal translation. It says, no one did. He was born this way that God might be glorified through what I'm about to do now. So we don't know. I don't think it's a bad idea when, you know, you battle in physical illness to go, Lord, is there anything in my life you're trying to get my attention about? And that's usually my kind of first, (laughs) my first line, you know, Lord, if there's anything I've not been listening to, you've gotten my attention now. That's not a bad thing. But I don't think the Lord wants us to walk around condemned, you know. He doesn't hide these things from us. I mean, he's not hiding it here. I will cast her into a sickbed. And then he pronounces his judgment upon those that committed adultery with her and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation. 
Um, she's not the only one who's going to be judged. I, it would be inappropriate in this mixed setting for me to explain what's actually going on with her here. Um, but it was vile. It was immoral. And the Lord says, I'm going to cast them into great tribulation. That, it just means trouble that involves suffering. We don't know what specific trouble Jesus is mentioning here, but it doesn't sound good. And then the Lord says, except unless they repent of their deeds. I love this because even though the Lord says he's already bringing judgment, his heart is to still see them repent, right? That's his desire. That's his heart. You know, in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord says he's, you know, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness. You know, when we talk about the judgment of God or the return of Christ, people will go, it's been 2,000 years, Will. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's happening. The Lord's not slack concerning his promise as some men, you know, measure someone's laziness or unfaithfulness. He is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God doesn't want to punish people, doesn't want to discipline people. And so that Jesus hasn't given up on Jezebel and her lovers shows me that we should never give up on someone, even someone who's like a Jezebel. Well, verse 23, there's another group that's going to be judged. She apparently had some disciples who were also teaching and having their own affairs with people in the church. And I will kill her children with death. That doesn't sound good. The word their death usually refers to when it's used that way as like a plague or a pestilence of some sort, so physical illness or disease of some sort. These others who adopted her theology and were leading others in the church into affairs with themselves, he says that they will be killed with a pestilence. You know, many people say, well, there's such a vast difference between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. And I I can't help when I hear those words to think, I don't, I don't think you're reading a Bible. And I'm not saying that to mock. I just, I don't think you're reading a Bible. I think you may be reading something else about a Bible. Because Jesus, all throughout the Old and New Testaments, always hates sin. And he always talks about how he's going to bring judgment upon it. Just as Jesus always takes zero pleasure in judging the wicked and always has longed for people to repent. Now, why is this judgment so severe on this group? Well, I think it's because the Lord wants his bride to know he loves them, and he hates it when false teachers lead his people astray. And it's one of the reasons I don't have a high tolerance for false teaching, especially when it begins to creep into the church and begins to lead people astray, because Jesus hates it. He judges it severely. He says, through this judgment, all the churches shall know that I am he which searches the reins in the hearts and that I will give unto every one of you according to your works. This judgment is so severe because he says, I want all the church to know. I, I don't tolerate this stuff. You know, not just Thyatira, not just all the churches then, but us too, Calvary Chapel Orlando. He doesn't tolerate it. They'll know that he's the one that knows everything. He is the one that examines, searches the reins in the hearts. Now, the reins is a word back then that was used for a person's innermost desires. He knows our motives. He knows our desires. He knows what's fueling our actions. The heart refers to our innermost thoughts, 
You know, he knows our innermost desires. He knows our innermost thoughts, and he is exposing them now uh, as it concerns Jezebel and, and her brood and those who were involved in the immorality with them, the idolatry with them, because he wants everyone to know that you can't hide from him. You see, this reveals a little bit of the truth about what was going on in this church. While her heresy was public, and people may have thought, I don't, I don't agree with that, the affairs, the sexual immorality was private. The idolatry was private, the, what she was interacting with people. So even if some of the church had questioned her ministry, they still believe she loved the Lord. She's just a little weird. But Jesus knew the truth. He knows the truth about all of us. He knew she didn't love him, and he knew she didn't love his people. And I tell you this morning, if you are using God's people for your own means, your own purposes, and you refuse to repent, what is done in secret will eventually be brought into light. Please repent before it's too late. Now, I can't even fathom what it would be like to be in this senior pastor's shoes, to be in that role, but I do know what it's like to be a, a senior pastor and to find out someone in your leadership, you know, or you know, someone in your congregation is living a double life. I know what it's like to be a, a, a member of a congregation, a parishioner who finds out that leadership has someone in leadership has been living a double life. The very first church I went to was a, a large church. I got saved at a very large church, and it was a bit too big for my family. We all got saved around the same time. And, um, and so we had friends of ours that had been inviting us to church for years. And so now that we were saved, you know, we, we were seeing the importance of getting connected and plugging into church, and, and this one was just too big for where we were at personality-wise. And so my, my family started going to this little tiny church, it was a great church, and they loved the Word, loved the Lord, really invested into my family's life. And, uh, but one of our leaders, a, a music ministry leader, had been molesting kids in the church. And when that came to light, I mean, it, it devastated the church. Many people left immediately. You know, I mean, the church probably could have handled it better and... and uh, I don't know many churches that handle those situations perfectly. But over time, it had a, a, a longstanding effect because of, you know, future suspicions and, and deeper wounds, um, over-criticism of the leadership, you know, has moved forward because we thought we don't ever want this to happen again. It was a very painful time. And so this news would be devastating to the church, to the senior pastor who genuinely were following the Lord. So Jesus has some encouragement for them in verses 24 and 25. He says, but I say unto you, unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, you, haven't, you didn't follow her teaching, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I'll get to that in a minute. He says, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which you have already, hold fast till I come. So the phrase there, but unto you I say, and, and unto the rest in Thyatira, it's just two phrases that qualify the same group. Uh, these are the true believers, those who had not bought in to Jezebel's teaching, um, and then it mentions they had not known the depths of Satan as they speak. So Jezebel was saying she knew the depths of Satan, Jezebel and her, her brood, her other teachers. Um, what is that? 
Um, they had never gotten involved in that. They didn't experience this deep knowledge of Satan that Jezebel claimed to have. Well, this is a Gnostic idea, and, and we see a lot of Gnostic heresies in these churches that are being corrected. Um, we talked about it last week, but because the Gnostics believed that all matter was evil, they believed all matter was evil, all spirit was good. So if it was in the physical realm, no matter what it was, it was evil. So because they believed that all matter was evil, they believed that the Lord didn't create the, uh, the heavens and the earth. The Lord, uh, the, the heavens and the earth were created by a lesser malevolent God who had rebelled against the Lord. Uh, he created our world. And so there was a, a sect of the Gnostics that Jezebel was likely a part of known as the Ophites, uh, means serpent worshipers. And they actually taught that Satan was a hero. Now, he wasn't always a hero. He was a bad dude. But in this moment, it was his redemption arc. He was a hero in that he convinced Adam and Eve to rebel against this evil maker who made them by opening their eyes to the deep knowledge of the difference between good and evil. Remember? He's the one who said, if you eat this fr- tree, uh, the fruit of this tree, your eyes will be open, you'll know good and evil. See, you've only heard this evil, malevolent maker's, you know, version of good. But I know it because I used to be with the Lord and I fell. So I can open your eyes to true good and true evil. So that's what they consider the deep knowledge of Satan to be, is this knowledge of what's really good and what's really evil. So what Jezebel was saying is, you know, hey guys, I know, I know we read in the word, it says flee sexual morality. I know that Paul guy says that, but you know, you got to remember, you know, that, that the word of God was given to us by this lesser malevolent God. He's in rebellion against Jehovah God. And, and so, you know, we don't really know what's good and truly evil unless we have the deep knowledge of good and evil. And I know the deep knowledge of Satan. It's been passed down to our group. And I've had this experience where it's been revealed to me. And if you hang out with with me, you can know it too. So in reality, flee fornication is not really true. It's okay to commit sexual morality. It's okay to eat food sacrificed to idols. And let me show you how it's done properly. The true believers in Thyatira refuse to buy into those ideas. And so the Lord says to them, I put, will put no another burden on you. The Lord has no further correction for them other than that you should not have allowed her to teach. Fix that. It's, tell her it's over. Ministry's done. You're fired. Now, the word their burden means hardship. This news would be hard enough. Hard enough. And this type of disappointment can be very discouraging. So the Lord says... Don't focus on this failure moving forward. Focus on what's going right. But that which you already have, hold fast till I come. The word here, but, is a a rare conjunction in Greek. And it it basically means despite how awful things are right now in your church, despite this huge bomb I've dropped on you, this huge revelation I've dropped on you, this is what I want you to work on moving forward. The things I commended you for earlier, your faithfulness, your heart to serve, your genuine love, Cling to those things. Keep moving forward in those things. That's all I've got for you. Just tell her to stop teaching and keep moving forward. Now, Pastor Chuck had a saying that has helped me, you know, run back to the Lord and back to his word in the most difficult of times when something's been dropped in my lap that's just, Lord, what do I do? And it's this. When you're confronted with what you don't understand, fall back in what you know to be absolutely true. 
And that's good advice. It's good wisdom, you know, from the word of God. When you're confronted with what you don't understand, fall back on what you know to be absolutely true. That's what Jesus is telling him here. Don't start to buy into the lie that I've forsaken you. Don't buy into the lie that it's hopeless. Don't buy into the lie that it's it's just been all a, a trick. No, 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 no. Keep moving forward in the areas that are good. You know, surely upon receiving this message, people in the church, even the senior pastor would probably think, how could we have missed such awful things? How could we have been duped by someone we trusted? And those types of experiences can be devastating to your faith if you dwell on them instead of moving forward. And that's what the enemy wants. That's what Satan wants. It's why he dropped her in that church. Because if he can't destroy our souls, he wants to kill our witness. And if he can't kill our witness, then he wants to steal our joy. He is fine with anything that will make us stop taking ground back for the Lord. He's fine with that. So don't let him. Don't let him. Cling to what you know is absolutely true. And keep moving forward until Jesus returns. Because for those that do, there's a beautiful promise. Verses 26 through 29. And he that overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And then there's a quote here from Psalm 2, verse 8. And referring to the Messiah, he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers. And then Jesus adds, that's talking about me, even as I receive from my Father. My kingdom's coming, and to him that overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, he will rule in that kingdom with me. Now, the overcomer, the victorious one, is someone who's trusted Christ as their Savior and is following him. But this time, Jesus adds something else to the promise, another condition. It says, and who keeps my works unto the end. The phrase there means who obeys my commands unto the end. So what do we do when everything around us is full of immorality, idolatry, and deception? What do we do? What do we, what do, we do when it's in the church as a whole, you know? Hopefully it's not in our church, but I'm just saying, what do you, what do, you do then? Here's what we do. We laser focus in on what Jesus said and obey it. We, we laser focus, we get our eyes off all that and we laser focus in on what Jesus commands us in his word and we do it. That's what we do. Because if we get all of our attention on everything else, it will lead us off the path. It will stunt the work that God's trying to do, not just in us, but through us. Now, That can be very difficult when so much around us is discouraging or angering. But that's why this promise exists for the Christian who does so. If you will do what he says to the end, get your eyes off all that, then you get to rule, you get the authority to rule with Christ. In other words, everything else might go, (laughs) you know, fall down around you. Everything else might be crashing. You know, those who stay the course to the end, they might not end up on top in this life but you will in Jesus' kingdom. And in Jesus' kingdom, you won't have to worry about any of this stuff happening because he will rule with a rod of iron. Iron is inflexible. There will be no compromise. There will be no votes, no elections, no candidates. It will be a benevolent dictatorship. Jesus' way will be the only way. And if you don't comply with that iron, it will shatter you as if you were a clay pot. So, don't be overwhelmed by what you see around you. You are on the winning team, even if it feels like you're losing right now. Keep moving forward. One other blessing before we close. Jesus also says, I will give him the morning star. What's the morning star? Well, Revelation 22, verse 16 tells us. Jesus says, I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. 
Jesus is the morning star. And while ruling with Christ will be an awesome blessing, the best part of the kingdom is actually in Revelation chapter 22, verses 3 and 4. Revelation 22, 3 says, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. That's what makes heaven heaven. That's what makes the kingdom the kingdom. You know, Israel was so overwhelmed when they saw just the afterglow of God on Moses' face, right? So much so that they made him put a veil over his face so they wouldn't see the glory of his, God's afterglow fade away. Guys, when we're in the kingdom, we're not just gonna see Jesus' afterglow. We're gonna see his face. Can you imagine what that will be like? Listen, whatever you and I may go through here, it will be worth that. Amen? So he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. You know, are you discouraged by what you see around you right now? Have you been let down by the church? Jesus didn't let you down. People did. Jesus didn't. And he doesn't want you to give up. The answer is to keep moving forward despite the disappointment, anger, and pain that you feel. He is still working in his church. He's still working through you and in you. So finish your race. Let's all stand. Oh, Lord. I know some of us here have probably experienced very painful things where the church has failed us. The people of the church, I should say, has failed us. But, Lord, you never failed us. You always loved us and you always will. You're faithful every moment, even as we sing. So, Lord, we, we don't want to opt out of the church. We don't want to opt out of serving or ministry or even opening ourselves up to get hurt again. We want to look to you, to laser focus in on what you say and to just follow you through all the anger, disappointment, and pain, to follow you, to keep going forward that we might finish our race. Lord, we commit that to you this morning in light of your great love, your, your steadfast faithfulness. And Lord, the fact that you know what it's like to be betrayed. You know what it's like to be mistreated, abandoned, and failed by your own. And yet you went to the cross for us. We love you for that, Lord. And we will follow you to the very end. In Jesus' name, amen.